0: Good morning. For those that don't know me, I'm David, one of the pastors here. Um, Our text this morning is John chapter 6, verses 16 to 29. We continue our study in the book of John, it's been a rich time in the word together. If you're able, please stand again to honor the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 6, verses 16 to 29. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they, ans- then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your throne of grace... We thank you for your holy, eternal word. We're so very conscious that what we hold in our hand is is not just any book. So, Father, we ask that your word not return void without accomplishing what you desire. Father, we pray that you make us, through your word, more like Jesus. Amen. A number of years ago... Susan and I um, lived in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We had good friends at church named Jim and Veronica who went by Ronnie. Jim and Ronnie were preparing to go to the mission field uh, to Peru. Like me, Jim was an MK, a missionary kid, so we had an instant bond. About eight years later, Jim and Ronnie were living and working on a houseboat in Peru. They would visit villages along the Amazon River, helping to establish churches. They weren't able to have children of their own, but they adopted a boy named Corey and a girl named Charity. One day, Jim, Ronnie, Corey, Charity, and a missionary pilot were on a small mission-owned float plane going between Brazil and Peru. They filed a flight plan and were in radio contact with air traffic control. Jim sat up front with the pilot. Six-year-old Corey was behind him. Ronnie was behind the pilot with six-month-old Charity on her lap. A Peruvian Air Force plane appeared behind them and without warning fired on them. They were patrolling for drug runners and were lax in following their own rules of engagement. As the missionaries plummeted toward the rainforest, the pilot prayed that he could glide to water to land the float plane. Flames and billowing smoke filled the cabin. He was able to land the plane, even though his foot had been shattered by a bullet. Another bullet, a single bullet, killed both Ronnie and Charity, who was on her lap. After the plane crash landed, villagers came in canoes to rescue their survivors. They were astonished to see familiar faces. This was the very area of the Amazon River where Jim and Ronnie often ministered. The missionary pilot was able to make it to the surgery, which saved his life. Jim and Corey were miraculously unhurt. Jim spoke at Ronnie's memorial service. A representative of the Peruvian Air Force attended, yet Jim's powerful and clear testimony that day cast no blame, nor was there a hint of bitterness toward God. Jim said that he forgave the Peruvian Air Force pilot and any others involved. He explained, How could I not, when God has forgiven me, Many wondered how God could have allowed this to happen. Like the disciples in today's text, they were obedient to Jesus, yet they still went through the storm. At the memorial service, Jim spoke of the providence of God throughout this incredibly difficult time. He listed the ways that God had been at work. Jim then urged others to place their trust in Jesus, He explained that God sent Jesus into the world to save us. He asked them to believe in him whom God sent. That's also the main point of our passage today. The Apostle John records these events so that we also will believe in him whom he has sent. The Apostle does this by demonstrating that Jesus is a greater Moses, that he is the authorized giver, Of eternal life and that faith in Jesus is what God requires. First, Jesus is a greater Moses. To the Jews, no one was greater than Moses. He was responsible for leading their nation out of slavery in Egypt. He's also the one who went up the mountain to meet God and receive the Ten Commandments. To the Jews, Moses is someone like a George Washington but not only the founder of the country, but the religious leader as well. So add to George Washington a famous pastor and your favorite Christian author. Roll them all into one person, and only then do you begin to get the idea. Moses was their hero. At the end of John chapter 5, Jesus told the Jews, even though they made a big deal about Moses they didn't really believe him. If they did, they would believe what Jesus was saying about himself. John 5 ends with these words. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, take the Mosaic law as an end in itself. They think it's the final expression of right religion, that adherence to the law can save you. But the law can never save. The law can never save. They've rejected the Messiah. The law points us to Christ, but they've rejected the 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 very Messiah to whom the law pointed, As Pastor Joe showed us last week, the theme of Moses carries into chapter 6. In John 6, 4, we're told that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, is near. Much of John's narratives is centered around these Jewish feasts, all of which point to Jesus. The Passover is instituted by Moses, which celebrates God rescuing his people from Egypt. You will remember that the night before they left Egypt, a lamb was sacrificed and its blood was put on the doorposts. That sacrificial lamb foreshadows Jesus, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 3 3 says that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses rescues Israel from slavery. Jesus, the greater Moses, rescues his own from slavery to sin. Pastor Joe explained how Jesus was walking in the footsteps of Moses. The people followed Moses because of the signs he did in Egypt. The people followed Jesus because of the signs that he did, healing the sick. Moses fed Israel with manna in the wilderness. Jesus fed the the 5,000, multiplying the bread and the fish. But more importantly, chapter 6 will go on to speak of Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus himself is our manna. We ended last week with verse 15 Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They liked his multiplication of the bread and the fish, moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. The crowd wants to make Jesus their king, but Jesus is already king, a far greater king than they could imagine. Verses 16 and 17. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The Gospel of Mark gives us a few more details. Mark six forty-five and 46 says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. It's evening, and the disciples get into the boat. Their intention isn't to go far. They just want to cut across the, the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Mark says their intended destination was Bethesda. John says Capernaum, which is about six miles from Bethesda, because that's where they actually end up. Mark tells us that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. The role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the incarnate Christ, is often underappreciated. We sometimes assume that Jesus's holiness and power in his earthly ministry were because of his divine nature and not the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. As a result, we discount Jesus as our true example. In his holy living and powerful ministry, Jesus drew on the same resources that are available to all believers. As is often recorded in the gospel, Jesus seeks time to pray. He is our example. He's our model to imitate. We should be characterized as people of prayer. I've been delighted to see a growing attendance at corporate prayer the first Wednesday of the month. We accomplish nothing without him. As Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Mark also tells us something else about the disciples' mindset. After Jesus comes to the disciples walking on the water, Mark says in six fifty-one and 52, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The crowds were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. Perhaps the disciples were swept up in this mob mentality. Maybe that's why Jesus sent them away, then went up the mountain to pray and intercede for them. In verse 17, John says, It was now dark. I don't think John is trying to be redundant here. It was evening and it was dark. But just as we saw in chapter 3, when John talked about Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night, I think there's more here. The word translated dark is the Greek word skotia. How does John use that word elsewhere in his gospel? It's used in four other verses. Does it mean more than just the absence of daylight? Let's see. John 1, 5, the light, Jesus, shines in the scotia darkness, and the scotia has not overcome it. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in scotia darkness, but will have the light of life. We also find the word in chapter 12, verses 35 and 46. So Jesus said to them, the crowd, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest scotia, darkness, overtake you. The one who walks in the scotia does not know where he is going. In verse 46, Jesus continues, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in scotia." In every other instance, John is clearly using scotia to refer to spiritual darkness. Verse 17, it was now scotia, dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The absence of Jesus and spiritual darkness are powerfully linked. Without him, we walk in spiritual darkness. We must beware of a form of religion without the reality of the presence of Christ. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. It's common uh, for sudden storms to come up on the Sea of Galilee. It lies 600 feet below sea level while the surrounding hills rise to 2,000 feet above sea level. So the sharp change in altitude creates ideal conditions for violent storms on the surface of the water. Verses 19 and 20, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near the boat, they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Mark fills in additional details. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, Was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. When his disciples first spot Jesus walking on the water, they think he's a ghost. It's dark. They can't see. They're terrified. So he identifies himself and comforts them. We see the compassion of Christ for for his own. The Greek word translated, it is I, is literally I am. In Exodus 3.14, Moses asks God, Who should I say sent me? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In the midst of the storm, Jesus reveals himself for who he is, the Christ, the Son of God, the I am. Verse 20, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Another miracle takes place, and the disciples immediately find themselves at Capernaum. Notice that the theme of Moses continues. After leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt, Moses finds himself with the Red Sea on one side and an Egyptian army bent on vengeance on the other. They're trapped. God causes a powerful wind to blow so that Moses can miraculously lead his people across the sea. Jesus demonstrates that he is Lord of the sea and the wind. He walks on the sea and brings his disciples safely through contrary winds. He sees his own through to the other side. John urges us to believe in him whom God sent, because someone greater than Moses is here. Before we leave this point, I want us to consider an important application. The disciples are facing rough seas because a strong wind is blowing. Mark says, they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. The disciples had contrary winds, even though they were obedient to Jesus. Jesus is the one that sent the disciples in the boat to the other side of the sea like our friends Jim and Ronnie, who were faithfully serving as missionaries. Sometimes we get the notion that if we're doing what God asks, we won't face hardships. But Jesus promised us tribulation in this world. Conversely, we think that if things are great, it must be because we're walking in obedience to God. Despite his promises of tribulation, we somehow think that the absence of hardship means that we're right where God wants us. In John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All of us, in one form or another, will experience suffering. Some of us accept it with trust. Others may rage against God about it, but though we may wonder what God is up to, he never makes mistakes. God rarely gives us the micro reasons for what we're going through, but he tells us the macro reasons. Romans 8.28 tells us he works these things for our good. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light, momentary affliction are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In this world, our joy is mixed with sorrow and our sorrow with joy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that as servants of God, we live as sorrowful but always rejoicing. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Jesus didn't keep his disciples from the storm, but he comforted them through his presence. Jesus didn't keep his disciples from the storm, but he revealed himself as God, as the I am in the midst of it. Jesus didn't keep his disciples from the storm, but he saw them through it. He will do the same for you. Next, Jesus is the authorized giver of eternal life. John returns to the issue of the crowd in verses 22 to 25. So please follow along as I read. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, Feeds the multitude. They're about to take him by force to make him king. So Jesus sends his disciples away while he disperses the crowd. Mark tells us that the disciples intend to cut across the northern tip of the sea. The storm drives them toward the middle. Matthew says they were a long way from land when Jesus comes to them walking on the water. The next day, the crowd is looking for Jesus. He can't be far from where he fed the multitudes. There was only one boat, and they saw the disciples get into it. People from Tiberias, miles away on the west side of the sea, have heard about him feeding the multitude, and they show up as well. The miracle of the loaves and the fishes filled the bellies of the crowd, and word spread. But the crowd can't find him. They finally conclude that somehow... He's no longer on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So they go to the northwest side to Capernaum, where Jesus usually stays while he's in Galilee. We know from John 6.59 that the ensuing dialogue takes place in Capernaum's synagogue. They ask him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're really confused. How did you get here? Verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus doesn't directly answer their question, but immediately goes to the heart of the issue. They clamor for him as a king, though they have little understanding of the nature of his kingdom. Like the woman of Samaria in chapter 4, and Nicodemus in chapter 3, they can't think past the physical and temporal while Jesus is talking about the spiritual and eternal. Here the crowd sees the sign, the attesting miracle of the multiplication of the bread and the fish, but they fail to understand what it means. They want an endless supply of bread. Jesus is offering so much more. It would be easy at this point to think that we're not at all like the crowd, that we don't hunger for the wrong bread, that we don't waste our life pursuing food that does not endure, pouring our life into things which perish. Work is necessary, and entertainment can be healthy, but sometimes we pursue these things to the detriment of our family. It leaves us no time for spiritual disciplines. We have no energy for serving the church. We have no margin in our lives to be a witness to the world. A number of years ago, I was given this plaque with a poem that reminds me what is important. The poem was written by Charles Studd. Charles was born into a wealthy family, educated at Cambridge, and one day a preacher came to visit. Charles said he believed that Christ had died. The preacher asked him if he believed God's promises of eternal life. I love that question. He then shared the gospel, and Charles believed the Lord Jesus for salvation. He wrote, I got down on my knees and prayed, and right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again, and the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. Charles became a missionary to China and later set up the Heart of Africa mission. The plaque I have with this poem says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It then quotes Paul from Philippians 121, for me to live is Christ. In our text, Jesus gives the crowd a word of warning. We need to really hear what he says and examine our own lives. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says to work, to pursue food that doesn't perish, not like the food that he gave when he multiplied the loaves and the fish, not even like the manna in the wilderness, but food that lasts forever. And because it endures, the life it sustains goes on into eternity. The antecedent of the word which is not clear, which the Son of Man will give to you. Does the Son of Man give food that endures or eternal life? Both are true. If he's talking about food, Jesus goes on to explain in verse 35 that the Son of Man not only gives the food, but he himself is the bread of life. However, we also know from the discourse with Nicodemus in chapter 3 that whoever believes on the Son is given eternal life. Believing is discussed actually in verse 29, which is the closer context to this verse. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So regardless of the way you interpret it, though, the giver is Jesus. He is the enduring food of the bread of life, which sustains us to eternal life. And by believing in him, we have eternal life. The verse continues, For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, in the ancient world, officials would roll up a parchment document, put wax on it, and then secure it or imprint it with their seal. This would certify the authenticity of the document and show that it carried the authority of the official. God the Father has set his seal on Jesus. He attests that Jesus is the exclusive, authorized giver of eternal life. John fourteen eight says, Jesus said to him, he's talking to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter says in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christianity is an exclusive religion. Jesus alone is the certified, authorized giver of eternal life and salvation. Next, we see that faith in Jesus is what God requires. Verse 28, Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Here we see that the the Jews have misunderstood what Jesus meant in the previous verse by the word work. His focus was not on the type of work, but on what is or is not an appropriate goal. He was talking about wasting our life. D.A. Carson says, the expression, the works of God, does not refer to the works that God performs, but to the works God requires. Their question, therefore, resolves into this. Tell us the works God requires, and we will perform them. From John's perspective, their naivety is formidable. They display no doubt about their intrinsic ability to meet any challenge God may set them. They evince no sensitivity to the fact that eternal life is first and foremost a gift within the purview of the Son of Man. They have the incarnate word, standing in front of them. Jesus is explaining that he can give them food which endures to eternal life. The crowd just wants to know what they have to do to keep on getting free meals. Give us the list and we'll do it. Given the Jews' emphasis on works, the answer Jesus gives must have seemed stunning. God's requirement was not what they expected. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The Jews were all about works of the law. They were list keepers, rule followers, but their hearts were far from God. They missed the whole purpose of the law, which is to point us to Christ. In Romans 7, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said You shall not covet. The law shows us our sinfulness. The law condemns us. Paul concludes the chapter, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law drives us to the arms of Christ. He is our only remedy. He is our only hope. Romans 3, Paul goes on to explain. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The law shows us that we have all sinned. We fall short of God's perfect standard. We fall short of his glory. We stand condemned before a holy God. But Christ redeemed us. He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. This payment... For our sin by his blood can be received by faith. We can stand before God justified by grace through faith. This is God's gift to us. The crowd asks, What must we do to be doing the works of God? What does God require of us? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. This is what God requires, that you believe in him whom he sent. Our culture loves to use the words believe in faith, believe in yourself, or more commonly, just have faith without any object of the faith. But faith in faith makes no sense. Notice the object of the faith here. Believe in him whom God has sent. Have faith in Jesus. Put your hope in him. Believe that he is who he said he is, the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, we can have life in his name. At the beginning, I told you about our friends, Jim and Ronnie. As I mentioned, Jim spoke at the memorial service for Ronnie. There were several speakers, but everyone wanted to hear from the one who had been on that plane, the one who had experienced the horror of being shot down, the one who had pulled his wife and child's bodies from the wreckage. Jim acknowledged that sometimes God's providence is a mystery to us, but we trust him because he's good. He spoke earnestly with those present, saying, Please, all of you, please, don't leave matters of eternity up to chance. Believe in Jesus. In the same way, the Apostle John calls us who are reading his gospel, to believe in the one whom God sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Jesus, a greater Moses. He is the uniquely authorized giver of eternal life. Only faith in Jesus meets God's requirement. Call upon his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus' We thank you for our salvation through him. We thank you that your grace is greater than all our sin. So, Father, we pray that uh, you would be at work in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to be your disciples, to follow hard after you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.